0: we be looking at Esther chapter 4 today, if you'd like to turn there. Occasionally I hear or I read someone say, I thought I was a Christian at the time. It wasn't until later that I realized I wasn't. You heard somebody say that? Sometimes a person doesn't know he's not a Christian until after he decides that he doesn't want to be one. And then at other times he doesn't realize he's not a Christian until he truly becomes one. And usually this kind of thing happens, it seems to me, because somewhere along the line the person has tacitly accepted the claims that Jesus makes about himself, or at least the teaching of the church about Jesus, he or she she has received some biblical information in a context where most of the people present believed it, like here, and then simply fell in with them. It's natural to assume what others, what parents, grandparents, maybe friends, took for granted. The person had information, often more or less accurate information, and assumed that being in possession of that information, made him or her a child of God. You can't make yourself a child of God that way or any other way. Only God can make you his child, and he does that when you believe in the name of his son, Jesus. In this series, we have repeatedly seen the sequence, the important sequence, insight, decision, and implementation as it's played out both in biblical instruction and in biblical portrayals, story of the prodigal son, the life of the patriarch Jacob, and the experience of the Apostle Paul. And we spent some time thinking, first of all, about how insight plays its role, where it comes from, how we can delay it, and what we must do when we have it. Now we want to turn and think deeply about how our decision-making impacts our progress spiritually. The prophet Joel cries out, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's pretty much where we live, in the valley of decision. God has so ordered things that any advance in the spiritual life requires us to make decisions. Now let me put this in context. So let me give you a little biblical context for what I just said. If you research the subject of choice and decision-making in the Bible, what you'll find is that a great deal of what the biblical writers say on the subject refers to the choices and decisions that God makes. We assume it's all about us, that our choice is all that matters, but that is not at all the case. His choice precedes ours in time And in importance. Yet his choices don't render our choices void. It's just the opposite. His choices make our choice possible and even necessary. There's no spiritual growth apart from choice. That's the way God designed it. He has endowed us with this astonishing dignity. Our decisions mean something. They make a real difference. And so does our lack of decision. We see this played out again and again in the Bible. It starts in the garden where Adam and Eve have a decision to make. And God knows that they must make a decision in order to grow as people. Apart from decision, there's no growth. And we know, as we read their story, that their future and ours hinges on the decision they make. Makes a real difference. In Deuteronomy 30, So we start in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy really is a long sermon, and and it's worth reading this long sermon about what God's been doing. In Deuteronomy 30, the importance of choice is highlighted in a big way. The lawgiver Moses stands before the people of God, already as people because of a decision he made, and tells them that they have a choice to make too. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursings, now choose life. God does not say, it doesn't matter what you choose. I, I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, so it doesn't matter what you decide. Rather, he says, your decision is a matter of life and death. This idea jumps off the page in the book of Joshua. And The old general knows that his time of departure is near. So he gathers God's people together and he reviews their history for them. He reminds them of how God chose their ancestor Abraham, their chosen people. That was God's choice. But then he presents them with a choice of their own. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we've made our choice. We will serve the Lord. Joshua does not say, look, God chose you, so your choice doesn't matter. No, he says God chose you, and that means that you also have a choice to make. God designed us so that real personal and spiritual growth only happens as we make decisions. That's why wise parents don't take the responsibility of making decisions away from their children. They may frame the decisions that their children can make, they may limit them in appropriate ways, but they don't take away their decision making responsibility. To do so would be to stunt the child in his personal and spiritual growth. And that's something God will not do to us. We need to make decisions. Throughout the Bible, we see these two interdependent truths. God makes decisions, and we make decisions. God's choices do not render our choices pointless. They render them indispensable. And so throughout the Scriptures, we find this call to decision. Choose for yourselves to stay whom you'll serve. How long will you waver between two opinions? This is the prophet Elijah. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. We're presented with choices throughout you cannot serve God and money. And the most important decision of all, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? For the next couple of weeks, we'll look at people in the, in the Bible as they make and fail to make decisions. Sometimes the decisions have to do with how a person will live for the rest of his or her life. Uh, Ruth is an example of this. So was Moses and Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. At other times, the decisions don't have to do with how a person will live, but with whether a person will live the rest of his life or her life. That's the case with Daniel and with Esther, whose story we're going to look at today. I encourage you to read the book of Esther. So this week, sometime, sit down and read the book of Esther. You can read it in one sitting. It's a great story. It's also unique among books of the Bible. It's unique in this. God is not mentioned once. It's the only Bible book where God is not mentioned in the entire book. Now, he remains in the background, which is often true in our lives, too. Working his plan, bringing salvation, but he's not named. The book of Esther, if you haven't read it recently, the book of Esther is a story of love and sex and political intrigue. It's one of those adventures where the clock is winding down, and the reader wonders whether or not salvation is going to arrive in time. Read the book of Esther, but let me give you a little background to get started. The story takes place during the time of Israel's exile from the Promised Land. Israel was exiled after a terrible war, long siege. They were exiled to the land of Babylon. Esther's parents were dead, and she was adopted by an older male cousin named Mordecai. And they were living in Persia, which is modern-day Iraq, during the time of the Greek and Persian Wars. So if you read history, you'll be aware of what this time is all about too. Just before the king went off to the wars, he and his queen had a very public breakup. It was on Entertainment Tonight and everything. After he came back from disastrous defeat in the wars, after he came back, he looked for a woman to take the queen's place and he found esther and it actually happened in a fifth century bc the bachelor contest seriously you can read about it esther entered the contest not that she had much choice in the matter and she won but on her adopted dad's advice mordecai she did not disclose her ethnicity she was a jew And at the time, there was a good deal of anti-Semitic feeling present in the country, and even in the king's court. The hatred of Jews was especially embodied in one man, in one of the king's counselors, a man named Haman. Haman actually knew Mordecai, Esther's adopted dad. He actually knew him, and he hated him. But he didn't know, and only a very small number of people did, about Mordecai's relationship to Esther, the new queen. So here's the picture. Esther is the Jewish wife of the petulant king Xerxes, whose chief counselor Haman is a thoroughgoing anti-Semite, but Haman doesn't know that Esther, the new queen, is a Jew. And it never even occurs to him to question her ethnicity. Haman, meanwhile, takes advantage of the anti-Jewish sentiment in the country to launch a Himmler-like final solution to the problem of the Jews. Every bit as horrific as that of the Nazis. He works on this plan in Susa, which is the summer capital of the Persian Empire. It's kind of counterpart, Persian counterpart to Camp David. And he gets the king to sign on. He then sets a date for implementation for the final solution, which will mean death and destruction to the Jewish community living in Persia. Mordecai, meanwhile, obtains a copy of the edict and stages protests in front of the palace. He gathers other Jews, and they fast, and they cry, and they wail right at the palace gates. It would be like protesting on Pennsylvania Avenue, day after day, when one of the few people who knows about the connection between Mordecai and Esther tells her what's going on. She's shut away in the queen's quarters in the palace harem. When one of the people who knows about the relation tells her what's going on, her relative is dressed in sackcloth like burlap, and he's making a scene. He's the leader of all these people down there making a scene on the street in front of the palace. She gets scared. She sends a trusted servant to him carrying a change of clothing. Implication I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, stop it. But Mordecai refuses. Now, to understand why things are going the way they are, you have to realize that Mordecai and Esther don't speak. They haven't spoken to one another for a long time. They can't afford to be seen together. Their relationship is a secret. Almost no one knows about it. And besides that, the queen and her retinue are pretty much locked away in luxurious quarters, but they're locked away all the time, partly to avoid the riffraff and partly to appease the king. Esther only sees other people at affairs of state. Otherwise, it's just the women in her building that she ever sees. She really doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know her people are in danger of of extermination. She's completely in the dark. And Mordecai doesn't know how much Esther knows or doesn't know. He imagines she's heard all about what's going on and isn't doing anything. So when she sends him a change of clothes, he can only guess what she's thinking. She wants him to remain inconspicuous to avoid trouble But that's not what he has in mind. He is not planning to go softly into that dark night. So through the rest of the story, keep in mind, Queen Esther and her adopted dad, Mordecai, have not spoken. They can't meet in person, and they have to conduct all their correspondence through a third person. And think about that third person. Unless you're one of the country's best Bible trivia experts, you don't know his name. It's only mentioned three times in the Bible, and that in the space of five verses. And yet God uses this all but unknown man to save his people, rescue his covenant, and prepare for the coming of Messiah Jesus. There are a lot of people like that in the Bible and in the world. Warren Wisby calls a few of them to our attention from the Bible. What was the name, he asked of the lad who gave Jesus his loaves and fishes? Who were the men who rescued Paul by lifting him over the Damascus wall in a basket? What was the name of the little servant girl who told Naaman to go to the prophet? We don't know. But God used these people to accomplish his purposes. As great doors can turn on small hinges, so great events can turn on the deeds of small, sometimes anonymous people. Now, let's read the text of Esther 4, that's enough background. Esther 4, I'm going to read from verse 5 down through verse 11. Then Esther summoned Hatech, that's her trusted servant, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So she said, what on earth is he doing? So Hatech went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Haman apparently was raising funds, raising revenues, in order to complete this operation. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go back into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatech went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception... To this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Hetach is in a difficult position. He has to convey not just facts, but the emotions of his two correspondents. Esther sends him to Mordecai. Mordecai sends him back to Esther with a copy of the Edict of Extermination along with the price tag for the operation, which might indicate that Mordecai had a high-level government job with access to state documents. And then he tells Esther what Mordecai said. Go to the king. Go to him. Beg for mercy for our people. Lots of things run through Esther's mind when she hears this. If she goes to the king, she's going to have to reveal her ethnicity. Mordecai's the one who told her to keep it quiet. She's going to have to come out of the Semitic closet. What if he rejects her? When he was disappointed with his last wife, things did not go well for her. Besides that, not even the queen is allowed into the king's presence unbidden. If someone presumed to go to the king without first being summoned, that person would be beheaded. That was a punishment, unless the king overruled. And who knew if he would overrule? He hadn't called for her In a month, maybe he was already tired of her. Maybe he was angry with her. She just didn't know. Esther instructed Hatech to tell Mordecai all this, and the message she got back was brusque, to say the least. I think when Mordecai got her message, he thought that she was making excuses, and so he was blunt. This is verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you've come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, I don't think he's being fair to his young cousin. She wasn't saying no. She was just processing. This was a big decision, and she needed to think, but she also needed to choose. Sometimes we think that being in God's will will remove us from the need to make tough decisions. It's kind of an escape. If I'm in God's will, I don't have to make tough decisions. It does not remove us. Sometimes being in God's will brings us face-to-face with decisions we would never have to make if we were just living for ourselves. When you're in God's will, your life matters. Your decisions matter. You matter. Now, I want you to notice how Mordecai frames what's going on. You, Esther, and, and this is important for us for the... As we go on looking at decisions for the next couple of weeks, you, Esther, have a decision to make. Maybe you can save your own neck, maybe not. That's not the point. And saving everyone else isn't the point either, because whether you stand up or not, God will be true to his covenant. Someone will arise to bring relief and deliverance to the Jews. God's already chosen that. You're not making a decision about how things will turn out, we don't get to make those kind of decisions. Those kind of decisions belong to God. Your decision is this, to do the thing God wants you to do or not. See, it might be that God brought you to this place for just this time. This is your opportunity to say yes to God. This is also your opportunity to say no to God. So what's it going to be? I think Mordecai believed God had already made his choice. He had chosen to use little Esther to save the Jews, to save the covenant, to prepare for the coming Messiah. Mordecai thought he could see God's hand behind all these things that had been going on, that seemed like coincidences. The king had too much to drink one night. The queen got stubborn. The king's ego was wounded. God didn't cause these things, but he knew just what to do with them. The king couldn't sleep one night. God used that too. There was a cancer growing in the heart of the kingdom, Haman, and his hatred for God and for God's people. And that had to be exposed. The writer never mentions God, but the Jewish people who read this and the Christians who followed them saw in these things signs of God's hand. He brought Esther to royal position for such a time as this. Now, when Esther got that message back, that second message, it was decision time. Some people are so intimidated at the thought of making a wrong decision, they make no decision. I'm an honorary member of that group. It's hard for me to say, okay, I don't have all the facts yet, I need all the facts. But there is a time for making decisions. The speech that Shakespeare gives Brutus and Julius Caesar is full of wisdom, in spite of the circumstances in which it was spoken, and the speaker. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune, omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. For Esther, the tide was high, the time was now, a decision needed to be made. And she made it. Listen to her memorable words as she prepares to break the royal law. She realized, I'm going to break the law. This is an act of civil disobedience. I'm going to break the law. And I'm going to risk my life for a purpose greater than myself. She says, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She made the right decision. She made the courageous decision because she got caught up in something bigger than herself, bigger than her safety and her comfort. Had her chief concerns been safety and comfort or prestige and position, she would have made the wrong decision every time as I read this I couldn't help but think of one of the lines from Martin Luther King's final speech which is one of the great speeches in American history like anybody he said and we're so familiar with this I hate to even read it because I can hear the tone of his voice saying it like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will king's speeches, by the way, are classic examples of insight, decision, and implementation. When Esther finally saw clearly what was going on, that's insight, she made a decision, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. But she didn't perish. And so chapter five begins with Esther implementing her decision into action. But the truth is she could have perished. See, making right decisions does not guarantee desired outcomes. That's so important to understand. Making right decisions does not guarantee desired outcomes. Our decisions must never be to have a certain outcome, but to take a certain action one that's in line with our insights about God, ourselves, and others. Outcomes are beyond our control, but actions are not. Outcomes are in God's sphere of influence. Actions are in ours. And so we need to make ourselves responsible for our actions while leaving responsibility for the outcomes to God. That's just the opposite of the way most people live. They make themselves responsible for the outcome, which leaves them susceptible to constant worry while not making themselves responsible for their actions, which leaves them ineffective in blaming others for failure. You are not responsible for how things turn out. You are responsible for what you do and don't do. Now let me wrap this up with a specific application of that principle, and then next week we're going to come back and look at someone else who has a decision to make in the scriptures and someone who has a decision to make he doesn't make. But let me wrap this up with one specific application of this principle. You are not thank God you're not you are not responsible for getting into heaven that's an outcome it's beyond your ability and therefore it's outside your responsibility that's God's business. But believing on that is following Jesus is an action within your ability and therefore within your responsibility. Like every other action, it begins with making a decision. So look, the tide is high. The time is now. The decision must be made. Have you made it? There are real consequences. All right, let's pray. God. Take what you want out of this and, and make it stick by your spirit. And from it, let insights emerge that are true about you and about us and decisions and actions that will, will bring good and will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name.